Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we are going to be talking about Australian television writing with a very special guest. Today we are joined by Chris Corbett, uh, an Australian TV writer. Hello, how are you? Yeah, I recently met up with Chris uh, here in LA. He's, he's here for a bit of a visit and looking to make his way over uh, to the States. So uh, I thought it'd be great to have him on the podcast and maybe just ask him a little bit about what it's been like working in the Australian industry and how that kind of contrasts to here. Uh, let's start off with how did you actually yeah, get your start in Australian TV? Sheer blind luck, I think it was. <laughs> I was uh, working in theatre at the time. I was the dramaturg for the Melbourne Theatre Company and I also worked with a, a company called the $5 Theatre Company, which I had helped to start up. And um, I just reached a point in my life where I thought, look, I'd really like to um, work in film and television. And that was because I had been a film buff. I had been madly keen about sort of TV since I was a kid, really. So um, I thought I would make the shift. And so I did a bit of thinking about that. I had to ponder about how to break into a completely new industry. Nobody knew me in Mm -hmm. TV. And I was lucky in that that was the first year that Film Victoria, one of our funding bodies, offered what they called an attachment scheme. Mm-hmm. So it was basically an opportunity for people with no experience. They were, I think I was paid probably just coffee money <laughs> to go and work for three months, you know, in the industry. I chose to work on a very popular show at the time called Blue Healers, which was a police show mm-hmm. set in the country. And that was, uh, that was a show that was the top show in Australia at the time. It was getting something like in a population at that time of about probably about 18 million, about 3 million people a night hmm. watched that oh. show. It sold to 50 countries. So I was blessed in that I was able to at least get my foot in the door. You know, it's not that that necessarily was an easy thing. Once I got there, they I did know they couldn't fire me for three months. That was good. <laughs> uh, if they had been able to fire me, I think I probably would have been fired on about the third day because I think on the third day they said, uh, okay, quick, we have to rewrite this episode almost completely. Do you want to do some? I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> I'll give it a go. How hard could it be? Wow. What were you it's doing very with- hard. <laughs> What were you doing other than that in the attachment? Were you literally just getting people coffee and, like, were you taking notes for them? No, no, they threw, they threw me right in. So I rewrote, well, tried to rewrite half an episode on day three. And then from that point on, because the, the enormous amount of work involved, that show made 42 episodes a year. Wow. And they were complicated sort of stories as mm-hmm. well. So at any given point, you were working on sort of 10 different scripts uh, that were going through production, you know, from the point of uh, initiating the story, from plotting through right through to production, really. So I was thrown right in the deep end. And while first sort of sinking straight to the bottom of the pool, I very quickly, you know, learned how to do it. Really. Mm. And by the end of that three months, I knew where the bodies were buried. So they, <laughs> they, they couldn't get able, rid of you. They were able to keep me on. <laughs> was this a primetime one-hour drama? Yes. Uh, how well-versed were you with the format, especially on the screenwriting side uh, of, the, of TV? I was not well-versed at all. That was, <laughs> that was largely the problem. I think that first disastrous uh, half an episode rewrite I did coming from theatre, I thought, well, I'll, I'll steer them into one room and they can have long conversations about things. <laughs> <laughs> at which point the script producer very generously said, look, um, we're not going to use any of this. Uh, this 12-page scene you've got here, <laughs> couldn't we just cut to the car chase and then couldn't they talk about that and then couldn't we cut to another scene? And uh, But I very quickly picked it up through failing miserably. And I think that's an important (laughs) lesson uh, is that, 
you know, unless you are failing miserably, you can't don't really have the opportunity to learn. I feel that the Australian writer's room system is very different to what we have mm. over here in the US. Do you want to just kind of give us the rundown on how it actually works? Sure. Well, it's changing. It's in the process of changing. But the system that evolved came from... Uh, Australia was very good at cranking out lots of drama. The companies, uh, Crawfords and Grundy's, used to just make enormous amounts of hours. And some of these shows, they would produce more than 42. Some shows produced 80 hours a year. So in order to get that sort of, to get that sort of amount of work coming through, you have to basically treat it like a factory production line. Hmm. So just as in a factory, you have to break up the jobs and divide it amongst teams of people. That's what happens. So in, uh, really what happens in that initial sort of structure is there is a script producer who is responsible for everything to do with the script office. They hire and fire. They are responsible for every word of every script, et cetera, et cetera. They would have one or sometimes two story editors who would assist with the plotting of episodes mainly because it's like a juggling act because you've got 10 or 20 episodes going at once. You've got to be plotting some while kicking others a lot further down the production line. Then there would be a series of what are called script editors, but really they you know, especially in the way the system worked, we were in-house writers. So because things would go wrong at all times, at any given point, a script would fall over and you would have to completely rewrite it, a page one rewrite, sometimes in the space of two or three days. I think the quickest I ever did with my um, with another colleague was we rewrote a script completely in one day. Wow, and how granular is it when you guys are breaking the story? Is it just a log line? Is it the full outline, scene by scene? How detailed is that breaking process? Well, in uh, going back to the old days now, I can say back in Blue Healer's time, because there was so much going on, you only had one day to plot. So that would, you would have a pre-plot where someone would go, I've got a great idea. What if that particular cop was kidnapped or whatever? Then you would have, you know, a long day, probably a 10 hour day of staring at the whiteboards with, um, with filling them out and getting whatever you could in that day. And we were very good at the fast plotting, but the problem was there was never any more time for more than that. You know, so when I read books about, you know, Vince Gilligan and his bunch sitting down and <laughs> breaking the story and maybe taking nine or 10 hours with all of the writers of the whole series there, I go, Oh, that's, I would, <laughs> I would kill for that opportunity. It's, it's a bit better now. Um, some of the shows I'm working on, I can get like a four day plot, but, day. um, back in those days, one day was all you had, which is why a lot of the stories, you know, ended up breaking you know and mm. would have to be fixed later in the process how many uh, episodes a season do you have for your uh four day breaking process oh the, the show that the shows that i've been working on lately is about eight episodes is the current mm. sort of uh, norm in australia is it close to the british process i don't know as much about the british process but i'd say it's probably fairly smack in the middle of the two of them so once you guys had broken these stories and it was time to to write the script did those go to the in-house writers were they farmed out to freelance writers how did it work ah well what normally happens is because of the time process and this was the way that grunding crawford model worked you'd have your in-house team that i described which would be script editors story editors uh, script producer at the top and then what would happen is you would have a whole list of um, outside writers. So they might be in another state or they might, so they'd be flown in. You would sit down for that one day. They would then um, go off for a week and write the scene breakdown, you mm. know, or treatment, which, you know, ends up being a 15-page document or so. That then would go through the in-house process of we would talk about that, write notes on that, change whatever we needed to change. They would go off then and write a 
three um, have three weeks to write a draft. That would then get subject to notes, then a second draft. And that was usually the point where those writers' contracts terminated. So they would get it to second draft. And from that point, just because they were usually moving on to their next script, they in-house staff would often take it over. Ideally, you know, if you were a script editor at that point, you prayed for the script that just worked so that you wouldn't mm-hmm. have to touch it. But inevitably, you know, someone would change their mind. Does it have, I know it's a robbery, but couldn't it be a kidnapping? <laughs> That's not going to be that different. Can you just change that? And because the um, those in-house people were very good at rewriting scripts, um, the that tended to get taken advantage of so mm-hmm. that there was rewriting going on all over the place, a lot more than should have happened. What do you feel is the breakdown between outside freelancers and the in-house team? How many writers are there total? What does that look like? Well, it depends on the show. So something like Blue Healers would have probably had, you know, a dozen um, outside writers, uh-huh. I think, working at its at its peak. That's That system is a bit um, antiquated now, so that's not what people are doing. We're trying to steer it more towards a version, an affordable version of the American system. So really, ideally, what's happening now is small groups of writers are doing whole shows. So often if it's a four-run or a six-run, it might be two writers writing all of those episodes. With some of the shows I'm working on that are eight, there's often about four of us writing. So I've just finished working on a new legal show, and there are eight episodes, and I was able to write three of those um, another writer wrote two, and then the rest were sort of farmed out to other writers. Why do you feel there has been a switch between this kind of massive amount of episodes and this massive amount of writers to this smaller version of an eight-episode season run? Uh, money. I think it's really boiled down to money. I don't think anyone can afford, no one could afford to make something that was 42 episodes now. It's a great pity because they were, those sort of shows were the training grounds. That's how people got their break. Whereas now with a lot more of these, um, call them boutique sort of shows, the door's a bit closed because they'll go, well, look, we can just get two people to write all of this and we can have one senior script editor sort of just helping them through the process and we don't need anyone else. So I think that um, if that sort of that boutique system had been operating, then I would never have gotten in the door. Whereas it's that feeding the monster thing, because those shows were so huge, you just needed a lot of people needed to shovel the coal onto the onto the uh, conveyor belt to sort of get those stories happening. I mean, that's something I wanted to ask you about as well, is how do you think it is in Australia and the TV landscape for new and emerging writers to break in these days? And- very, very difficult um, for the, the reasons I've outlined is that because... Well, also because producers and shows, everyone does their best, but they're risk averse a lot of the time. So if it's really a matter of if we can get three really experienced people to do all of these scripts, why wouldn't we? You know, and that's, that's really sad. So I mean, I'm always, I'm bemoaning that and I'm, I spend a lot of time trying to help as many people as I can. But the door is the door is often closed. And I think the differences, it seems like the differences between in Australia and, and America about people getting their break is also to do with labor laws. So in America, it seems there's a, a limitless stream of interns. It seems possible you can, <laughs> yeah. you can say to someone, 
hey, how'd you like to come and work for us? We won't pay you for two years, <laughs> yeah. but you can just donate your time. And people go, yeah, sure, as they should, because that's an opportunity. It's an investment. Right. But in Australia, they would, the police would be locking you up very quickly if you try to do that. You know, I, I can sort of get people to donate. You know, sometimes people will donate like one day, but any more than that. And it's, they have to be paid. That's very difficult. And the risk averse producers don't want to spend that money. Is it also the lack of kind of an apprenticeship type route? Because here you do have this writer's assistant model where you can you know enter the room through that level but i know that for example in france you don't necessarily have the same model like it's it's i feel it's closer to the australian model where you have this set group of writers and it's extremely hard to break in because you don't have that foot in do your writers room have assistance Uh, how does that work on that level we do often that's people people that take the position of script coordinator which is the person that does all the formatting and things like that is usually usually someone that's just graduated from one of the screen writing schools, etc. So that's really the one of the few entry level positions left. There is often unofficial. So even even on Blue Healers way back then, every episode that was plotted had an observer come in who would observe the process and who would then stay in touch with that episode right through. So of that for, of those 42 episodes a year, there would have been 42 people coming through the door and they would then write their sample segment or whatever. Unfortunately, because people were busy, they would disappear into a filing cabinet. But every once in a while, we would open that filing cabinet and go, Oh, there's five really talented writers here. Let's get them in and give them a go. Um, there's an unofficial process now. So even though producers and production companies can't do it i try to make it a point so whenever i write an episode i will get in contact with someone from one of the screenwriting colleges vca or rmit and say have you got a student who wants to shadow me so what i will do is that person i'll gain access for them to come into the plot with me so they'll know everything i know about the plot as i go off and write my scene breakdown they write either a whole scene breakdown or a segment of a scene breakdown which i don't see initially while I'm writing mine. And then once I've handed in my scene breakdown, I will sit down with them and go through theirs line by line and for what it's worth, give my opinion. And it's a subjective opinion about what works and what doesn't work. And then uh, we follow that through all the rest of the steps. So as I'm writing my first draft, that person is writing their first draft. I will again go through it line by line and talk about what I think works and doesn't work. And that's true of the second draft as well. So by the end of that, whatever writing sample they have through that, I encourage them to then send to the producers in the hopes that they will take them on Mm. at some level. Do people hire students off of those spec scripts? for lack of a better term? Occasionally, occasionally. Because everyone is, of course, on the lookout for talent. If someone comes along and is brilliant, of course, they're going to get a go. I mean, the dangerous thing is, look, with writing is that, and this is why the doors are closed and people have to understand this, is there's a whole lot of people that think they can write who can't write. (laughs) You know, the person that thinks they can write but can't write looks exactly the same as the person that can write. Sometimes the person that can't write is more confident appearing cocky than the person that can't. It's a tricky process to actually decide discover who's got the goods Mm -hmm. and give them a go and so often the way the other ways that people can get a break in australia is there are there are some fantastic competitions so i'm involved with the australian writers guild and the the guild runs brilliant competitions we're running one at the moment called primetime which is part of scripted inc Uh, and what's happening is people are invited to put in their pitch for a tv show it's only open to members of the australian writers guild um, their six-page pitch for a TV show and a 15-page sample of writing. And then that is judged. So there will be hundreds and hundreds of entries. 
And once that uh, sort of shortlist is picked of 20 people or whatever, some people will win a prize and that's a cash prize and, you know, the chance uh, for people in the industry to look at their work. But of those top 20 people of the list, the Guild will then keep an eye on them. So the Guild will put them into what we call the Pathways Program. And once you're in that, it just means that we are going to look out after you. We're going to do whatever we can to promote you. We're going to do, we're going to try and put you in front of people that can help you. Uh, we're going to try and get you mentoring. So those sort of competitions are really a fantastic way to sort of winnow out who the, who the fantastic writers are who are up and coming and then do what we can to place them in the industry. And how do you become a member of the Australian Writers Guild? I know here in the US, you do require some on-screen credits and, and money that you have earned to your name. No, in Australia, it's uh, it's a lot more open than that. So we have different degrees of membership. So to be a full member of the Australian Writers Guild, yes, you have to have credits, etc. But you can join as an associate member. So as an associate member, or even we have student membership, you are eligible to enter all of those competitions. So you'd be you'd be mad not to. So for that fee. Each year, we also have very good sort of monthly meetings. So, you know, you you come to our monthly meeting and you'll meet someone that might have just written a big Hollywood movie or might have just launched a new show on Foxtel, our cable channel. And um, you'll be able to talk to them, hear about their trials and tribulations, pick up sort of practical writing tips, etc. So what's the landscape like in Australia in terms of like uh, managers and agents? Is there as big of an industry in that as there is here? Or how do people, does everyone have a manager slash agent as a writer? I don't have an agent. Mm. So I've never really needed one, which is problematic when I come over here then. So I will, you know, if I, if I cold call an agent or manager, I'll say, hi, look, I've got 50 hours of TV credits and there's probably another 100, 150 hours I've written that don't have my name on them and mm-hmm. I've worked for 20 years. And they say, well, if you've done all this work, have your agent call us. And I go, I don't have an agent. <laughs> At which point they go, oh, here's another Australian charlatan trying to <laughs> muscle his way into our industry. And pretty much the phone gets clicked down. So there are certainly some fantastic um, literary agents working in Australia. But there would be, you know, there'd be a handful. There's probably about five or six and of the major ones and other smaller ones. We don't really deal as much with managers. That seems to be a uniquely American phenomenon but certainly you need both by the sounds of it here hmm. yeah, is the employment then done through literally word of mouth is it just uh recommendations well mine is if there if you have an agent in australia then certainly they're going to be on the phone sort of touting for work for you i have luckily just been able to through word of mouth people will go oh that you know he writes for that show he seems to be good and then ask around and again it's one of those sort of systems where you know it's a bit like tradespeople, I guess, where the people that are good um, have have the good word of mouth and they get more jobs in the end. So what's the relationship like between writers and producers, both back in the days of Blue Healers and how's that evolved now in terms of like creatively and and how you guys work together? Well, the Australian system is different in that um, here in America, from the, the little I know about the process, it seems like the writers are in charge, which is writer heaven for me. <laughs> I, I want to go to a place where the writers are in charge. In Australia, because of the way things have evolved through that Crawfords and Grundy model, non it's, and again, it's changing. So there are certainly cases where this, this isn't the case. But the model generally has been that non-writing producers are in absolute charge. Um, that was good for sort of churning out things, but it's not always great creatively because that non-writing producer will be the person that will say to you, eh, does it have to be a kidnapping? Couldn't mm-hmm. you just change it to a robbery? You know, mm-hmm. they, they, they often are not 
inward enough with the process of storytelling. Some of them are brilliant. I'm not, not disparaging those non-writing producers. But decisions will often be made about what's good for the schedule rather than what's good for the story. So, I mean, an example uh, an ex- example might be, and I've had this happen to me, I'm not going to name any producers, <laughs> but you'll be, you'll write your episode and you will have been through a three-month process and you've gotten it to the point where it's it's really good. And at the very last minute, you know, like the week before it shoots, the non-writing producer will say, um, oh, listen, that, that part, that small part you've got for that person in that one scene. And you go, yeah. And they go, well, look, we've signed a contract with them where we've got them for the full week. And you'll say, that's great. And then they'll say, well, write them into four more scenes. <laughs> and you say, there's no need to write that. They have one function and they fulfill it in that scene. They're going, well, and the producer will say, well, we're wasting money if we, if we pay that much for them, we don't use them. So they will completely destroy the story, writing mm. scenes, jamming them into scenes where they have no place. Uh, and I don't think that would happen here. The schedule's king and the budget's king uh, for those non-writing producers. But that's certainly changing now. It's, there's a, I think we're about to enter a, a bit of a golden age in Australian television. And uh, it's been slowly changing where it's been more about teams of writers and it's been more about uh, writers stepping up and uh, trying to adopt a version of the uh, the sort of showrunner model. And recently, uh, Shane Brennan, the great Australian writer who runs NCIS and um, its sister show over here, is, is in the process of returning to Australia. And in doing so, he has generously decided to give a million dollars a year of his own money to Australian screenwriters to produce their own work. And he has been, I think he sees the Australian industry in the same way that I do. And he's very much about anyone that gets the money from Scripted Inc. It's about seeing the writer's vision through. So the writer will have to be boss with all of those projects that are going to be set up. Producers are welcome to come on board, but they are going to have to service the writer's vision, which has, I'm sure it has the Australian produce, non-writing producers seething. <laughs> seething. Can oh, you know all that wasted money with those extras that we've paid that we can't jam into scenes anymore. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how those projects uh, get set up? Is it a question of the producer who comes up with an idea and then hires the writers? Or is it more there's a writer who's the producer level writer who comes in with an idea? A lot of it is sometimes it is writers. It's a, it's a bit of a mix. There are certainly, there have certainly been situations where producers will come up with an idea and then they will more or less buy a room full of writers to realize that idea and to flesh it out. And that's okay. That's fine. Whatever sort of gets you there to the end. The funding bodies in Australia, well, in TV they do, the, the funding bodies do certainly pay for a lot of the development, but it's indirectly, it's through the, through the producers. So they don't actually have a say often about how those shows will go. You're not going to get a funding body ring you up and saying, you know, make it from, make it into a robbery rather than a kidnapping. <laughs> yeah. And these are mostly government sponsored funding bodies. They are. And that's so again, because of the small population of Australia, really, it's very hard to find a viable audience for a lot, you know, in terms of the numbers that something like America has in spades. So really funding bodies need to assist with both film and television. And, but then what you get, of course, is you get a, somebody has to invent a system that has checks and balances in it, um, where sort of they have to work out what, you know, 
why to fund this project and not fund another. They have to, and being a government body, they will have to spell out criteria for all <laughs> of that. So again, but the funding bodies do an amazing job with the limited amount of money that they have to distribute, and they have mm-hmm. to make very, very hard choices. Um, so that's tricky. And, and, and again, that, that model can work too, because you look at something like, I'm always amazed by Denmark. Denmark has a population of something like 6 million people, I think. Mm-hmm. But you look at the amount of amazing television shows they churn out and movies every year. So they're certainly doing something right. In fact, I think one of the things they did right, and look, I have nothing to back this up. I haven't Googled this. But the anecdote that I've heard is that um, Danish TV used to be not quite as good as it used to be. And what they did was the government sort of sent a delegation over to America, of all places. And um, the delegation concluded that the reason that American television had a better chance was because the writer was in charge. Mm -hmm. So they went back to Denmark and said, oh, we have discovered that the writer is in charge. At which point (laughs) the government said, let's put the writer in charge. And there's been an explosion of fantastic stuff happening. So I think Australia is certainly heading that way. I... I suspect that the next five years is going to be a glorious time. For That's amazing. Television. I feel like a lot of countries are now realizing uh, that television is the writer's medium. I know mm-hmm. France is on that trajectory as well, where a bunch of film schools are realizing, oh, wait, the, the director or the producer is not king on TV. It should be the writer. And so they're transitioning that way. I mean, as a viewer and as someone who is, you know, obviously enjoying television yourself, uh, what do you feel like the differences are between the Australian TV that's coming out and, and US TV? Well, I think the, the main one is that because there's this huge audience out there, you can actually divide that audience into niche audiences. So you don't have to please everyone. So you can make Breaking Bad and you know that the evangelist Christians are not going to watch that. You know, <laughs> you don't have to try to please everyone. Whereas in Australia, because of the small population, I think what happens is just to get the numbers, there is often an attempt to try to reach as many different audiences with something as possible. So if you had pitched Breaking Bad to an Australian producer, you know, years ago, uh, and it hadn't been made here, they would have, you know, they probably would have initially said, oh, this sounds really exciting. This is great. But very soon after that, the discussions would have been, does he have to cook meth? <laughs> and then they would have said, does he, does he have to be 50? Couldn't he be like a guy in his 30s who's really sexy? You know, and couldn't it be? So- and then a gradually, you know, you would just end up with nothing, really. Mm-hmm. So there is that. And, and it's not as if they're trying to do that. Everyone's doing it with the best will in the world, but there is. There is a sense that you have to try to get big numbers with everything. So whenever you do the show and you go, okay, it is, it's about these people and they're in their forties or whatever. Instantly you've got people going, well, okay, how do we, how do we get the 15 year olds to watch it? I know we give them a kid and every episode's got a B story with the kid in it. I know. Why don't we give them grandparents as well? Because mm-hmm. then the 70 year olds will watch it. You can just see that things are designed in order to try to reach as bigger as big a crowd as possible. And so what that means is it makes it tricky. Whereas here you can do something, just go, we know we're going to get, you know, 2 million people watching and you you can just sort of find your tribe and find your audience. Is there a movement for more independently produced television shows or is it all kind of controlled by 10 networks and that's it? Well, there's even less, yeah, less networks <laughs> than that, yeah. But... Well, there is, and the, the commercial networks have had a really good go. I think, I think that the commercial network television in Australia 
per capita has been one of the most profitable in the world by mm-hmm. far. Um, but they didn't necessarily, you know, do a great deal of drama. They did as much as they had to do according to our quotas, um, but they didn't really do any more. But now there are new opportunities arising because I think the future is also going to be that, um, you know, there will be shows made in Australia for Netflix or for one of our similar um, companies called Stan that will travel all around the world. So I think that's really, globalisation is, you know, um, there's many downsides to globalisation, but I think the good side is that it's just as possible to make a, a global show in Australia mm-hmm. as it is anywhere else. Yeah, I think traditionally Australia has had these quotas on the amount of Australian content that mm. had to be shown on TV, but they weren't that specific as to whether it had to be drama or whether it had to be this and that. So we got a lot of unscripted TV. We got a lot of kids um, programming. We got whatever was the cheapest for them oh, to fill up those hours with. Absolutely. And not only that, but the commercial TV networks then get around it by saying, oh, well, New Zealand, that counts as Australian content. <laughs> so they just they dump a whole lot of New Zealand shows and they, uh, pl- they don't even care. They play them at like 11.30 at night. They just yeah, dump them on the air and they go, that's a year we've done that big, you know, reality shows. Yeah, that counts. Yeah. So they've constantly. And they, they still would, fill prime time with all the American stuff they've licensed. Well, they so. have because it's that bizarre thing where, you know, but, and budgets vary. But and to, to make an hour of television in Australia, you, you're going to be spending $800,000 to a million dollars to buy NCIS or buy any other show, you're going to spend 30000 because it's already made its money here and mm-hmm. they just get dumped onto the mm-hmm. world market. So, you know, it's business people that run this and business people go, oh, do I want to spend a million or do I want to spend 30000 <laughs> You know, what are they going to do? How successful are those uh, American exports or imports, I should say, in, in Australia versus the national content being created? Oh, very successful. So, I mean, all the great shows we get and, and Australians are avid viewers of stuff. So, they are absolutely sort of eating up all the content that's coming through Netflix, that's coming, you know, through the um, the other big networks, etc. Netflix only just came out in Australia, I think, what, six months ago or something? Not that long ago, yeah. 12 months ago? Yeah, not long. Are they creating uh, original programming in Australia or is it just a uh, distributor? Well, at the moment, they're just a distributor. I think they're starting to. They might have made one announcement, but I don't think they're compelled to. You know, often, and I think France leads the world in this, where France will go, hey, if you're going to come and you know use <laughs> yeah. us as customers, mm. then you've got to make a certain amount of stuff, right. you know. So you end up with Jared Deppard, doing whatever that show is. <laughs> Marseille. Yeah. Yeah, Marseille. So, Ter- terrible show, terrible but, show. But, you know, uh, Australian um, regulators need to do that. They need to say, okay, mm-hmm. Netflix, if you're going to come in and you want to scoop up millions of dollars in this country, then you're going to have to put a certain amount of it back. So certainly Foxtel, which is the native Australian sort of cable network, were compelled to do that. They had to spend a certain percentage of their profits or whatever mm. putting back into the industry, and they have, which mm-hmm. is great. But like you said, there are a couple of Australian-based streaming uh, services coming out now. Stan, yep. uh, there's one or two others that I, I can't recall anymore are. that are sort of starting to come about. But uh, yeah, I did hear that Stan had just ordered, I think, four original uh, Australian TV pilots. Yep. Um, and they're doing amazing stuff. There's a show called No Activity, which is just wonderful. It's one of the funniest shows I've ever seen, which is, and it's a really simple show. It's just about two cops on a stakeout, basically, oh, yeah? in their car. It's <laughs> hilarious. They've just made a second series of that. Uh, so in your work as a writer, how involved and heavy handed are sort of standards and practices and, and censorship and things like that when it comes to, you know, the, the stuff that you're working on? I don't experience a lot of direct censorship, but you do often find it is a, it's a strange, there is that there is a political element to things. So 
for example, you know, I do know that I was working for a certain network doing a show and there was a point where I said, oh, well, okay, this would be, this is the point where we learn that the character that owns those mines is doing something corrupt and they just go, hang on, hang on. The producers would say, let me just stop you there. <laughs> <laughs> the channel we're working for has a very powerful miner on the board. So we're not going to do that. At which point you go, oh, okay, there's, well, here's another story about, you know, a powerful newspaper owner who does this. <laughs> and that's, I'll stop you there as well. On that same board is a certain, you know, dynasty member who owns a lot of newspapers. Okay. It's a casino. No, you can't do that. <laughs> so there, and that's not coming from the people on that board directly. But that is coming from everyone underneath them who mm. depends on them for their jobs, who doesn't want to displease them. I mean, that can also happen, you know, there was another network I was working for, you know, that I think, well, I will just say relies on government money, where I was writing something about asylum seekers, what's happening in Australia, and the shameful things that are happening in Australia at the moment. And the, yeah, the notes I was getting were suggesting, oh, are there is there really a problem with asylum seekers? <laughs> oh, I, don't, I don't think there are children. We should give voice to the other side of this oh, argument. Oh, no. <laughs> so uh, that episode did gradually change. Otherwise, I'm pretty much free to do what I like. What do you think are the kind of differences in, uh, in the themes and values expressed in Australian TV versus American TV? This is going to be like a long tangent, but uh, as Nick knows, I'm a big uh, fan of the show Survivor. And mm. I know Australia a couple of months ago started their own version of a Survivor hosted by Jonathan LaPaglia from mm. The Slap. So obviously Survivor is a very cutthroat kind of game, very strategic and so on. But the, the Australian Survivor, the successful players are, are valuing, uh, mateship and, and mm -hmm. kind of, uh, uh, this idea that the player that who should win should deserve it. And so it's a very different kind of value system from the American show, which is all about the strategy and all about the cutthroatness. So do you feel like all those obviously unscripted, but do you feel like you do have this sense of almost whitewashing of certain values? in Australian TV to appeal to a broader audience? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a very interesting and involved question. Uh, let, me, let me just say that I think that, well, there are differences in the temperaments of the two peoples. And I know that reality TV has its templates. So reality TV has always had the, you know, you've got the bad judge and then you've got <laughs> the nice judge and right. you've got to do it that way. So I think it's, it's interesting in that, that that template was certainly adopted, you know. So there were certainly things like uh, singing competitions on screen where there would be the, the local resident bad person who would just be imitating Simon Cowell and they'd do it that way. Mm -hmm. But then I think there were a few happy accidents where MasterChef, which is a competitive cooking show came out in Australia and everyone was lovely. It didn't, it sort of didn't need it anymore. They just went, everyone would go, wow, that's a really good dish. Yeah, I like it too. What about you? Yeah, I think it's great. Now <laughs> that's no should, Gordon Ramsay involved. Yeah, now like, yeah. It's, it's trying to superimpose because in drama, of course, you know, as, um, as Tolstoy told us, you know, happy families aren't interesting. Um, <laughs> without conflict, there is no drama. So, but suddenly they found that there was, there was a way to get around that in, in terms of the survivor. Well, some Australians will just kill you, basically. <laughs> you, you don't to be on that island with some Australians, right. but generally, you know, I think there is a principle of that mm -hmm. uh, mateship and and uh, helping each other. Definitely sounds reflective of like our cultural conversation and what people tend to promote as Australian values. You know? yeah. It's certainly true. We had a we had a screenwriters conference um, recently in Australia, and we brought out some um, American writers, the wonderful Alexa Jung, and um, basically she was interesting in that she uh, she just got up 
But every time she was speaking, I just said, you people are so nice. <laughs> you know, it's like the, uh, you Australian writers, you get together and you all just help each other. You know, and she basically said that wouldn't that wouldn't necessarily happen <laughs> back back home. So I think that idea of competitiveness and that cutthroat thing, I can certainly see metaphors about that in right. you know mm-hmm. the writing industry. Um, but it's in I haven't really experienced it much mm. in Australia. There is really a sense of people trying to sort of help each other. But perhaps converse to that, there is the the classic tall poppy syndrome where someone oh. succeeds in Australia and everyone oh. feels the need to kind of cut them down because they've abandoned, oh, you know, they've gone off. And that is know. a classic Australian thing. You know, it's like we will go, wow, you know, it's like that that person now they're a famous actor and now they're great and they go, yeah, they're not so good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> me it is a strange it's a strange turn of mind well moving back to to writing stuff for a minute you've obviously worked on a lot of uh, procedural drama whether you know police mystery all that sort of thing how do you find that differs to writing for you know dramas that aren't that don't have as much of a, a formula per se you know do you find it easier or harder to write you know is it harder to make it interesting and fresh or is it difficult to stick to that oh look i think all all storytelling is hard um i've never I've never found a formula that worked. So, I mean, I love that when we talk about formulas. I go, I've been doing this for a long time and I've never seen anything like a formula, you know, because mm-hmm. really every story that you make, whatever was successful with the last one just doesn't work anymore. Mm. So, but in terms of the sort of procedural structure, I, I, I find it, I guess it's just, you know, a habit of mind too, but it's about, it's about what you know. I had never done murder mystery until recently. That is hard. <laughs> because not only making any story is difficult, almost impossible. Making almost any story work is hard. But then when you have to add an extra layer on top of it, which is it has to be a puzzle that you can't solve until the last minute mm. so that armchair detectives aren't saying, oh, it's him, you know, <laughs> in minute 10 is incredibly difficult. So you've actually got to play with that. I found that extremely difficult. But then on the other hand, you know, you look at something like I haven't done much soap opera, but when I did, I found that that's probably the hardest writing gig I've ever had to do because I just go, well, what what are these people doing? What's guiding us from one scene to the next? But with each show you do, of course, you start to learn that there are various conventions and then you start to go, oh, okay, I get it now. I found that also with McLeod's Daughters, which was, I could only describe the genre as horse opera, you know, (laughs) where you would just have to, and basically in the end I worked out it works like a rom-com, you know, so you just had to sort of work out, oh, okay. But, But again, with anything I write, it's always a matter of just minute by minute, how can I keep this interesting? What would this person do? Would they do that? In terms of police procedure and stuff, it certainly helps to just learn as much as possible about that. We were blessed at um, Blue Healers where we had a full-time cop on mm. board. Mm-hmm. They were still part of the police force, but their job was to help us. So you could just walk into the cop's office and go, if I wanted to kill someone with electricity and water, what are the best ways? <laughs> or you'd say, if someone if someone pointed a shotgun in the face of a cop, what would they do? And in one case, the cop said, well, when it happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. In terms of a narrative, are there any American or Australian TV shows you kind of look up to or inspirations for your stories? Oh, for me? Oh, I'm not sure whether they inspire me directly, but I just love a lot of Australian. So, and again, but I've got very eclectic tastes. So BoJack Horseman is one of my <laughs> favorite shows ever, I think. Yeah. I just love that show. But I also like Fargo. I will also... You know, if, if you're looking at my sort of 
things that have really shaped me, things like The Wire and mm. The Sopranos, of course, are very high up. I certainly try to let them influence me, but then sometimes you, you know, that's a particular style that I'm going forward might not fit with, um, you know, Australian producers and things like that. All mm-hmm. right. Had I known that you were a BoJack Horseman uh, fan, I would have worn my I Am Zoe t-shirt oh, that I God. own. <laughs> wow. Where do I get those? Uh, it was a gift for my birthday, so <laughs> sorry. <laughs> uh, so I know over here, uh, US TV writers often have a chance to go down on set and supervise their episode, and then they maybe get to sit in on the edit bay and, and provide input on that. Is, does that happen at all in the Australian industry? Is there, any, is there any respect for the writer as a kind of a, a unit in that way in production? Respect for the writer. <laughs> um, no, it doesn't really happen. Uh, I wish it did. I had the opportunity to visit a set here and was just amazed, you know, right there, right at next to the director's chair. The two writers were there. They spent, they were there for the whole shoot. They would draw the director aside and say, oh, I'm not sure that's quite right. They would solve problems. Maybe this line would be better than that line. I think that is wonderful. No, the writer in Australia. And again, this is changing, but in my experience, the writer tends to get locked out at that last bit. So mm. I, I can be a bit bolshy in that I will, um, I will often write for a show and go, well, no, I'm, of course I'm coming to the director's meeting. And they just get very sheep. Well, why would you want to come to that? Oh, well. You know, and then, and of course I'm going to come to the read through. And yes, I'd like to go and visit the set maybe mm. for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they just, they get very suspicious when I do that. They think that I'm going to what? try and take over or something, whereas I just want to be part of that process. And as those problems come up, you can solve them. Whereas because the writer's shut out, I think things sometimes get uh, wrecked at the last minute. You know, mm-hmm. there was a, again, I won't name the show, but there was a show I wrote where I had written a duel. There was a scene of a duel, believe it or not. And so I did all my research and I watched Barry Lyndon and I worked out <laughs> how, how duels worked. And I thought I wrote this scene where... They, they sort of stood back to back and then they took their 10 paces and then they took turns as they had decided they would. So one person shot and missed and then the second person had to decide what they were going to do. Would they shoot this person now? Hmm. So that scene was all written and got right through and then I got a call one day and they said, oh, yeah, we're on the set. One of, one of the actors, and it wasn't like a main actor, it was a guest actor. <laughs> the guest actor said, oh, I think this would be better if... Um, they just turned back to back, took paces, turned around and shot. So <laughs> I'm saying, you mean like Warner Brothers cartoons yeah. from the 40s? And they said, yeah, yeah, we just think that would be better. And I go, well, then what are you going to do about the whole thing about having to choose? who? You- well, no, that's what we're going to, we're going to do it that way. And that's, that's what happens. So that, wow. that encapsulates, I think, um, what often goes wrong with Australian television. And so maybe to get away from that, you're now trying to transition your career into the, the US. Damn uh. straight. <laughs> well, I'm, look, I'm very happily uh, working in Australia and will continue to do so, but mm-hmm. I, I'm hankering for the freedom that mm-hmm. they have here. I would just love to be able to flex those muscles that mm-hmm. I haven't been able to flex in Australia. So, yeah, I would love to work in the States. Look, it's a it's a long game and it's a slow road. So I think this is the first of what will be many visits coming out here. And I can understand, uh, you know, American TV people going, well, okay, we don't know what he can do. He can yeah. only write Australian stuff. 
We saw that scene with the duel. That was crap. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to put S's in his script instead of Z's. That's right. <laughs> yeah. uh, how do you kind of translate those those credits and that experience to the American audience and, you know, even the American production system? When you approach agents, as you said, uh, they kind of look at you sideways because you don't have an agent. Uh, how do you approach that, that side? Very unsuccessfully. Um, no, they're not really interested at all at the moment. So again, it's just a matter of Australians come over here and there are, there are, you know, probably a handful of really great Australian writers who have just quietly infiltrated and are working away. But often Australian, more film directors, I think film directors and writers come over on the back of having won something at Sundance or having made a small sort of indie festival circuit movie that's gotten some buzz. So they mm. sort of come here and get on the books of various agents and things. And there's there's a lot. So there's a lot of people that are bouncing back and forth across the Pacific. Um, in terms of, you know, looking for TV work and things like that, it's, it's a matter of who you know, I think. So it's just a matter of slowly I will build up the people that I sort of meet and like and talk to and hopefully get my foot in the door somewhere. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, like you say, maybe it is a little easier for features because they are distributed and seen around the world, but the vast majority of Australian TV isn't going to make it across the oceans if people aren't familiar with those shows. Although a few have popped up on Netflix now, is that right? Yeah, well, look, uh, the, one of the shows I wrote for which had a, um, which has a very big audience is Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries, and it's a fantastic show. It's about a woman private detective in Melbourne in 1929, mm -hmm. and she's got a gun in her bag, and she's got a knife in her garter, <laughs> and she sleeps away around, around town as she sort of solves these very complicated murder mysteries. And that is a, that's a fantastic show. There's been three series made of that, and that has a, a cult following all around the world now. So that that's very big in Europe and it's very it does very big numbers here on Netflix. It's just a matter of trying to sort of um translate that sort of success into getting in a door somewhere. Hmm. And what do you feel like your you know your big picture goal is in your career? Do you want to be a showrunner? Do you want to have your own production company? Where, where do you see for yourself in you know? Oh, certainly I would love to, I would love to run a show. So I've done um I've done lots of jobs in television, but I've never taken on that big job. But I could easily. It was also about I think I had a um I had a young family at the time. So that was that's the sort of job. If you're gonna do that job, you've got to be prepared to work the sixty hours a week mm -hmm. or whatever. So I'm ready for that job now. Uh, so we talked about how the Australian industry is slowly changing and improving itself, but um, obviously it still has a bit of a ways to go. What kind of improvements would you like to see made so far, especially in regards to writers and their position in the industry? Well, I think it, it is happening now. There is there is a model which is run, which is, again, as I said, it was it's small groups of writers writing everything and working together, doing all the plots and things like that. So I, I had the fantastic opportunity to work as a script editor on a show called uh, Wanted, that came out recently, which was uh, just a wonderful show. And that that had basically a showrunner. The um, Tim Hobart, who was running that show, he wrote two of the six episodes. Uh, another fantastic writer, John Ridley, wrote um, for that show. And Kirsty Fisher wrote for that show, mm. all great writers. Mm -hmm. But they just did everything together. They all fed back on each other's scripts. And then when it came to production, um, Tim Hobart was – he had to um, approve – casting locations everything so it's as close to the showrunner model as i've seen i also know that marcia gardner who runs the uh, wentworth show mm. um people love that here too by the way right yeah. set in the women's <laughs> prison which is fantastic yeah. um i know that she's very interested 
in that model. So she, I think, runs that with probably about four writers. Mm -hmm. And again, they all work on each other's scripts. They all develop stuff together and it works beautifully. It works a treat. So I think we're almost there. I think that it's really just that extension of that um, model that we're looking at. Mm -hmm. So it's about just, um, it's about giving that power to those people to actually, and it's, it's also about money and it's about timeframes. Because I think what often happens in Australia, and I'll go back to Blue Healers just for a moment, we used to work on that for 42 weeks a year. We were employed for 42 weeks, and every year we'd have to come up with stories for 42 episodes. Every year at the beginning of the year we'd say, could we have some time to actually plan what those 42 episodes were? And the, mm-hmm. the network would go on. <laughs> <laughs> and they would in the end go, you can have two days so we would have two days to sit down and try and work out story arcs and 42 stories which Mm. is just ridiculous because their thinking was well no once you're doing all the other stuff you can do that Mm. and i think that still happens to a certain certain extent so there's many shows i've worked on where you know the writing seems to start at the last possible moment and then everyone is frantically busy, so they don't have time to go to the set. Really, if you've got the money and the resources and you decide on the show, there's no reason why you shouldn't have most, you know, at least 80% of the scripts in the bag before pre-starts so that you then can go, okay, we've we've um, gone through that whole process and given birth to these scripts, and now we can sort of, you know, follow through their early childhood development as it goes into print. Mm. And how do you feel that the Australian TV industry could kind of uh, reach that international audience a little more? Is it a matter of content? Is it a matter of distribution? A little of both? Is it, you know? Oh, I think it's, I think it's largely a matter of luck. I think mm-hmm. that if, if international audiences actually watched Australian shows, they would love them. You mm-hmm. know, there is a real, there is a, an aversion in some countries, you know, to actually watching stuff from elsewhere, which is strange, really. Yeah. You'd think when you look at the whole way that literature works, it's about mm-hmm. vicariously experiencing something else. Mm-hmm. So you would think that people would go, I really want to see what life is like for those those young 20 people living in inner city in Australia. Mm-hmm. But there is, a, there is a certain portion of every audience, I think, that then goes, why would I want to see that? They're not, <laughs> they're not me. <laughs> I mean, I think there are a few people at NBC that really liked the show called The Slap, mm. uh, and they liked it so much that <laughs> they remade it in English. Oh, no. Well, that's, that's happened. English, English <laughs> in American English. That's happened a lot. Well, that goes back to Mad Max. I think when Mad Max first came out, they, had, they did a whole other soundtrack. They said, <laughs> mm. people... We've got no idea what these people are saying. Let's have them speak in American. How was the American slap? Because I f- that felt like such an Australian show to me, and this, yeah, all these cultures too. and things. Like, did you ever watch I, it? I just watched the first episode. They even took uh, Melissa George, who was like an awesome mm, actress, yeah. like back in her same role. I think they just adapted it to because um, the original the slap is a lot about the the Greek community yeah, in Australia, and I think they adapted some elements to uh, America, but I didn't feel like it worked as well. And then it was very much the the same. Like there was no real. I didn't feel there were any like big changes uh, mm. they version. often don't translate yeah there's a lot of australian shows that have been remade I like with that. rake i think yeah, recently yeah. that didn't rake, go too well, well. rake is a huge. wonderful show that's oh, a fantastic great and it's hugely successful in australia as well and i think look i i didn't i just saw the first episode of the american version and that was great and greg kinnear is a fantastic actor but the i think uh for what i've heard anecdotally there was a sense because in rake he's terrible you know mm-hmm. he's, a, he's not a not a reputable character at all mm. and would often lose and i think there was something about the american sensibility where they said 
no, he's got to win every time. Mm. Oh, yeah. And so I think that they weren't prepared to go, you know, they wanted the essence of the show, but the essence of the show is he's a rake. He's terrible, you right. know. So it's that, that sanitization, I think, happened that sort of missed yeah. the point. Although there have been some more successful cases. I think Wilfred actually did reasonably Wil- over well, here. I think Wilfred's, well, yeah. It's Maybe largely because it still had, was it Jason who played the, yeah, yeah, he's the dog? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Big dog. What a great idea. I think they're just show. doing Animal Kingdom now, right? They're turning that's that into show. TNT, yes, doing it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, right. They buy a lot of shows. So there is a point where almost every successful Australian show, someone mm-hmm. over here has bought it. And yeah. And tries to make it work. It. Yeah. What advice would you give to young Australian writers who are just coming out of those film schools and who are, you know, just really wanting to break into the industry somehow? What do they have to do to make it? Well, I think one of the... I do a lot of work with young writers who are sort of starting out, and I think one of the main things is just to get the mindset right, to understand how hard it is. There are some people that get very frustrated because they get out and they go, well, why is anyone making my stuff? All the stuff that's on the air is crap. My stuff's much better. And then... When you actually start talking to them and start going, well, how much do you write every day? How much are you preparing? How many ideas do you have? They go, well, I've just wrote that short. That should be enough, shouldn't it? <laughs> you know, there, there is a real uh, – since I went to hear Terence uh, Winter speak the other night, and he was great because he used the sporting analogy. Mm. He said what you've got to under, understand is it's like – and he used baseball, but I often use Olympics when I talk about it. Mm. If you want to be a screenwriter, you've really got to be – um, you're up against the best in the world. So it's like the Olympics. If you want to, it's not as if you're going to go, oh, okay, look, I really think I'd be good at that pole vaulting thing, but I've never actually tried it. But, oh, you know, why can't I be on the team? That's not fair. <laughs> so I think the advice I would mainly give is to just get as good as you do, whatever you can to get as good as you can. Mm-hmm. So it's, it is just really a matter of, um, write every day, but at the same time, you need to get good advice from people who know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Showing your mum isn't going to help you. Your mum's <laughs> going to say it's great. You've really got to do as much work on the actual writing and learning to tell a story because people often just assume that that's a natural process that everyone can do, and not everyone can do it. So whenever I do teach mm-hmm. and I talk to students and I say, well, you know, one in a hundred story ideas that I'm going to come up with works, they're shocked because a lot of people in that audience have had one idea and that's all they've worked on for mm. the past five years and then they get very bitter and twisted when that doesn't go ahead. Mm-hmm. So I, well, one practical bit of advice would be don't just go off and write one screenplay and stick to that. I would actually think of more about writing stories. So if you can write a one-page version of a story and then you might have 20 different stories that are just expressed in that one page and try them out on people. Try them out on people. Tell them your story. Look them in the eye and see whether they're interested. I mean, the real test, the real test with something like that is if you tell someone that one-page story and they'll be nodding and smiling and at the end they're going to tell you how good it is, <laughs> then you say to them, tell me that story back. <laughs> and they'll go, um, something with cats and aliens and there was something else in there. So they haven't been listening to a word yeah. you've said. If you get your story right, they will. T- whatever they tell you back is your story. That is the bit that's jumped over that gap. And, and people often sort of go, well, why, why would I waste time just writing 21-page versions of stories? But that's actually a better use of your time than writing one big thing that looks like a screenplay but might not have a story 
in it that works at all. I was just going to say, I, I feel it's something that we always like to reiterate here as well is the value of networking. As you mentioned, there's Australian Writers Guild events, you know, in Australia, there maybe there are less events going on than around LA, but, you know, that could be a blessing and a curse because you're going to have maybe some, it's a smaller world. So you're going to have some bigger name people showing up to those and have those opportunities to meet them and get to know them. Absolutely. And certainly the, um, the guild events across Australia and, and ours in Victoria in particular, we're very friendly and open. So anyone that comes to one of those nights and they're at a pub and will listen to a speaker and things like that is always welcome to come up and speak to anyone mm-hmm. that's on the guild. And generally, you know, we'll have a, a good chat about it. Now, don't take your screenplay out of your bag and ask <laughs> them to read it. That's an uncool move. Don't make out on the first date. You know, yeah. Exactly. But if you want to talk about stories and want to talk about things like that, that is the way to go. So, yes, that networking is important. Some people spend too much time thinking mm. about networking without thinking about the writing. Yeah. So they're just thinking about who they're meeting yeah. and then they can't actually go and spin the straw into gold yeah. when it comes to the actual writing. So you've got to really mix. You've got to be really good. But even if you were, if you're a brilliant writer and you're alone in your room and no one knows you're there, mm. that's not going to help you either. Mm-hmm. So it is about sort of meeting people, but yeah, it's just, and, and having something to show them then. Yeah. You know, having the right thing to show. And that's where something like the one page version of that's the sort of thing you don't want to drag your screenplay out of your bag. You want to say, well, I do have this story. Yeah. And then if they're mm. polite enough to listen to the story for three minutes and they go, wow that's really good, then they are going to ask you to read that screenplay, mm-hmm. you know, or they are going to volunteer to help you work mm-hmm. on that story. Yeah, you got to lead the horse to water. Don't just, like, splash it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Don't Fire piss, that, don't piss that horse off. <laughs> <laughs> so to cap this off, do you have any Australian TV shows that you feel people should watch or oh. uh, that you recommend? Oh, absolutely. Well, certainly there is um, No Activity, which I recommended. I'm not sure whether you can get that here, whether anyone's picked it up. That is a brilliant show. Also, by the, that same sort of production company, there's a show called The Moody's, which is absolutely hilarious. It's about a family meeting for Christmas. So each episode is a different Christmas. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. The between episodes, a whole year has gone by, and yet they're still in the same sort of bizarre <laughs> patterns that they're always in. Um, that's a great show. There's a fantastic show that the Australian Broadcasting Commission made called Barracuda, which was a four-part show based on the same uh, by a novel by the same guy that wrote The Slap, who um, it's about a young swimming star. And that is a fantastic series. That was just absolutely brilliant. Rake, I would recommend to anyone. Jack Irish is another great show, which with the great guy Pierce uh, acting in the lead, which is about yeah. a, um, a guy who's an ex-lawyer who becomes, he never says he's a private eye, but he's pretty much a private eye. And that, the texture of that show and the writing of that show is just wonderful. So I certainly would recommend that. Even going back through, you know, some of the older shows, something like Love My Way, which was made on Foxtel, is a brilliant show. Tangle's a brilliant show. We really do punch above our weight in terms of population. Mm. There's just yeah. a lot of and I do encourage, you know, you know, Americans or Canadians or French listening to just give Australian shows a go. You know, I think they um, they certainly are, you know, they open a door to a whole other culture. I think there's sometimes an unnecessary cultural cringe even from Australians themselves being like, oh, Australian cinema isn't that great or Australian TV isn't that great. But I don't know. I think, I think that's a misconception. I think that's. Well, it is. Outdated. And it's, and it's, well, it is outdated. And in terms of acting, it's not true. But if you had said to someone in the 1970s, Australian actors are going to be, you know, winning Academy Awards. <laughs> and, like and somebody like Jackie Weaver, you know, she's going to be acting opposite 
Robert De Niro, any Australian in the 90s would have said, oh, bullshit, they're not good enough, they're no good, what are you talking about? They're just doing crap shows and everything's crap. That that weird Australian negativity would, yeah. kick, would kick in. <laughs> and now look at us. They're taking over the world. I yeah. think the same thing often happens, people, you know, they, they talk about writing in that same way now that mm. actors were spoken about in the 1970s. But it's changing, you know. It's like it's only going to take, you know, a few Australian writers to win their Academy Awards for screenplays and then people are going to go, oh, those Australians are the best writers <laughs> in the world, you know. We've got to get more of those Australians over here. All right. I think that brings us to the conclusion. Thank you so much, Chris, for coming along and sharing your wisdom. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, and thanks to all of our listeners for taking the time to tune in. I hope that especially some of our Australian listeners back home get some value out of this and, and find it interesting. And if you did, uh, please feel free to leave us a review at paperteam.co slash iTunes. That is C-O now.com. And I'm uh, online at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. Do you have a Twitter, Chris? Do you have anything we can follow you at? I don't tweet, I'm afraid. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Come and talk to me if you see me somewhere. Okay. <laughs> we'll put a picture of you up so people can find you. Uh, and, yeah, we would always love feedback, thoughts, and opinions. You can email those to uh, ask at paperteam.co. That's A-S-K at paperteam.co. And uh, on that note, thanks for listening. <laughs>